Heads up, dear listener. This is Ian McKenzie, founder of the Mythic Masculine Podcast. And before we jump into the episode, I want to tell you about the next A Gathering of Stories online event. Back in February, we brought together renowned storytellers, musicians, and poets to explore the soul of masculinity. On July 31st, we're doing it again. This time, we're exploring the question, what power lies within the heart of the feminine? This one-day livestream event will weave a diverse tapestry of story, musical performances, spoken word, and movement. The incredible lineup includes Indigenous elder Grandma Rose, poets Naima Lightseed, Maya Luna, and Lila June, storytellers Leah Lam and Genevieve Zofia Dow, with musical performances by Yaima and Safai Labelle, plus more performers to come. This event takes place on Lamas, July 31st, and tickets are offered as pay-what-you-can. To register your spot, head to agatheringofstories.com. It's going to be amazing. Okay, thanks for listening. And now, on to the episode. On today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. I remain deeply underpersuaded that masculine and feminine, as personality types or as fundamental aspects of personal identity are as valuable as they're trotted out to be, as useful as they seem to be employed to be. I don't understand these things fundamentally as identities. I understand them as functions, in that sense as verbs, not as nouns. I think when they atrophy and become a personal identity, there's an enormous amount of intolerance that's basically waiting by the door to to gain entry into the arrangement. I think it's much more compelling and frankly intellectually honest to allow the real possibility that masculinity and femininity are ways of inquiring rather than things to inquire about. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and the new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Stephen Jenkinson, a culture activist, teacher, and author, and principal instructor of the Orphan Wisdom School, co-founded with his wife, Natalie Roy. He has master's degrees from Harvard University in theology and the University of Toronto in social work. Stephen's most recent books are the award-winning Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul, and Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. I first encountered Stephen back in 2012 when a friend invited me to a summer teaching that was close to my home in Vancouver. That morning, he gathered us at first light and told a story about the sun rising. I was never to be the same again. That meeting altered my life completely. And that winter, I joined the Orphan Wisdom School on his farm in Ontario and have returned to many gatherings and teachings over the years. I have also produced numerous short films on Stephen's work, including the Meaning of Death, The Making of Humans, and Lost Nation Road. If you've listened to this podcast for some time, 
you know that I usually quote Stephen at least once an episode. And this interview has been a long time coming, largely because I wish to record it in person and not over Zoom. I finally had the opportunity last September when I traveled to Ontario on a whirlwind trip to the farm. If you'd like to hear more of that story, I've shared an additional recording which is available to my Patreon supporters. Head over to the Mythic Masculine website and click Become a Supporter if you'd like to gain access. For now, I'm very pleased to share our conversation where we explore personal and profound territory, including the lost origins of the mythopoetic men's movement, the times Stephen met Robert Bly and James Hillman, the deep etymology of the word patriarchy, and the mythic understanding that a culture needs its fathering as much as it needs its fathers. And so, enjoy my conversation with Stephen Jenkinson. Welcome, Stephen, to the show. Ian, welcome. I welcome your welcome, <laughs> since we're actually sitting in my hall, but it's great to... I never thought you'd ask. Mm. I would love for you to describe for the listener uh, mm. where we are right now. We're in the all-but-defunct teaching hall of the all-but-defunct Orphan Wisdom School. Mm. Yeah. It's a, a hand-hewn post and beam building with no metal to speak of at all in it except for the tin roof and uh, you're sitting across from the last carving that I did in one of the one of the beams it's 20 oh no about 36 feet long that over over three beams and you can see the writing from here the amazing thing for me was when I was laying it out and then doing it, I never pictured that I'd carve words anywhere here. Uh, I never thought about it, but it was never in my mind to do it. But this is a quote from, well, me. And uh, <laughs> you're allowed to say that? This is, this is me saying this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it came from, uh, uh, I think it was uh, Come of Age. And I'd written it and I'd sent it in, and the editor sent it back and said, you're missing the attribution for this epithet that's mm. up here. And I wrote back and I said, no, it's not missing a attribution. And then they wrote back and said, well, where'd you get it from? And I wrote back and I said, I don't know. But as far as I can tell, I come up with it on my own. And they wrote back, are you sure? And I wrote back and said, this is the last time you should ask me that. Yeah. Mm. So it says, um, you begin in the light you end in wisdom if the gods are prevailing otherwise light mm-hmm. yeah and so it's a serious business right it's a, it's a real challenge to the age mm-hmm. to imagine that if you prevail in the pursuit after light you may do, be doing so at the expense of the gods presence in your enterprise mm-hmm. and you know, I, I would do without the light if I if I was forced to choose, and often I am. Mm-hmm. But the thing I noticed when I I got a part of it up, and at each end there's a zoomorphic ensemble, right? Monsters and such. And I I realized that I could feel my brain change, not just change gears, but change its its very understanding of itself and what it was doing 
when I went from all of the imagery here to reading. And it was it was a, a stunning uh, interruption, mm. you could say, that there was something about reading, writing, that was um, highly intolerant of the image. And I really caught a glimpse into the history of uh, literacy as we've talked about it in school. And, and the only thing it came close to reminding me of is the very first time I put a fence in one of the fields here on the farm. And the fence post was one thing. But when we heaved up the, the wire fence and it ran down the length and I saw it up like that, I felt two things at the same time. One of them was, um, man, we're, uh, we're somehow enclosed, mm. you know, as a relief. And then, oh God, we're somehow enclosed as if now, mysteriously, the pagan life force is on the outside and I'm on the inside looking out so to speak. Mm. It's very similar. Amazing. And so even though nobody's coming around anymore and who knows what'll happen, but I still get an opportunity to uh, be uh, bamboozled by uh, ordinary things that I seem to surround myself by. Mm. Well, thanks, Steve. You bet. Strange days in this moment and these mm -hmm. times have come uh, four hours or so from Toronto. Mm. Um, for a brief visit here to, to record this. And I think the listeners know if they've been listening for a little bit of time that I've come to study here at the school for quite a few years now. I mean, I think 2013 was mm -hmm. the actual first class. And it's, hard, it's still hard for me to describe, you know, what happens in the school, mm -hmm. like in some ways, um, because anything I try doesn't quite do it. And, Maybe that's why over the years that, you know, I've crafted these little things, you know, video things that, that somewhat throw up the scent of something, you know, and, and I'm grateful that somehow they seem to have called in a number of others, right? Who mm -hmm. didn't quite know what they were catching, but somehow it drew them. And over the years, the school grew quite a bit, or at least the um, efforts to get in, it mm -hmm. seemed. And then now COVID hit and, right. you know, here we are. So, you know, I'm grateful that we, we, have a moment to to wonder about a few things together. Yeah, um, I guess neither one of us were doing anything. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, and one of the particular topics that I think, well, if we could circle it somehow, and you know, again, I'm hesitant to even volley a question or two around these things because mm -hmm. you know, time in the school, so much emphasis is put on the you know the the right questions, the right. well crafted questions. And this podcast came about um, really to wonder about masculinity you know, in different ways than maybe it has been wondered about. And maybe I want to start, maybe not going directly at it, you know, but mm -hmm. I wonder first, you know, even me asking that question, if you think back to your earlier days and, you know, your childhood and the rest, like what was the the models of masculinity or what, what were the templates that were presented to you in the time that you were in, you know, even then? As a child? Yeah. Uh this may sound either prehistoric <laughs> or hard to imagine or both, but I would say by and large, it didn't come up. It never came up. It was simply not a discrete item of interest or inquiry. You know, I, I remember this about, it's a little early in the, in the interview to mention Leonard Cohen, but here we go. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, I read an interview of him uh, years ago 
they asked him after his uh, the tutelage of his inner life as a child, imagining it must have been just something stupendous to produce a Leonard Cohen. Mm. And I guess he paused, and then he said, uh, actually, no one ever inquired after your inner life. They were more interested in the order with which you could assemble your shoes at the front door mm. for easy retrieve on the way out. And he meant it. He was probably overstating it, as he does, but there's something similar to me that nobody, I don't ever remember anyone talking about it, uh, being overly concerned about it, men or women. And uh, I suppose, you know, hormonally speaking, there's a bit of a prompt eventually, you know, one way or another. But prior to that, the closest I could come is to say that as a memory, there, you know, I was, I lived in a home where there was a, a mother and two sisters. And this was very unusual in those days. Very unusual. And, and, uh, it didn't, it wasn't easy life to live. It never is. I'm not saying, but certainly in those days, it, there was a lot of stigma attached to it. And you were treated at school as if there was some, um, some deep, a malaise had penetrated your domestic situation and you were damaged goods. Mm. I can distinctly remember that receiving that kind of treatment from the teachers, God bless them, who were trying to figure out how to be, mm. I don't know, um, to recompense me somehow for the, the bereavement, yeah? And somewhere in there, I probably became alert to how strange, relatively speaking, the ways of men might might have appeared to me. I, as I remember, because I didn't have a lot of firsthand experience, you know, from a from a fairly early age. So rather than any kind of instruction or or articulation or inquiry, it was maybe uh, remarkably present by virtue of its absence. It had a different kind of presence. Yeah, mm -hmm. something that I probably had to wonder about independent of any encouragement or inclination around me to do so. Mm. How did the absence show up then? And maybe maybe it's now looking back, but how did the how did it make itself known to you in its absence? Well, it's kind of it's easy and self-evident, you know, there's there's just no man there. Mm. And then I mean, you have dealings with men outside the house depending on your age and the circumstance could be at the corner store or, you know, something like this, or mm. maybe a relative. And maybe the relatives on, on occasion were, let's say, scrambling to compensate a little. Mm. Um, but I, I, I guess I had a sense that uh, I was watching uh, the, the comings and goings of another tribe, you know, when I when I saw men in action, you could say. And uh, it, was, it wasn't charged with any particular kind of uh, sentiment, you know, about it. But there was certainly a sense of, I think that's the best way to say it, there was, this was a tribe and uh, their, their manner was uh, something else. And then somewhere in there, and I was lucky enough to write about this in the in the come of age book. 
we got invited to a uh, family reunion, which was the only one I ever went to. So that says something about the family I was reuniting with, I guess. But I might have been, I don't know, seven, something like this. And um, I was introduced to these these characters that were referred to as my grand-uncles. I had no idea what a grand-uncle was. Grandfather and mother, but that was it. And they were, in fact, my grandmother's brothers who had never been mentioned during the entire course of my you know, short but intense life as a seven-year-old. And, um, and they were absolutely wild. I mean, they were, in some level, they were creatures. And they were wild and, and they were unkept and they were uh, brill-creamed and they were dangerous for certain. And, and yet they included me Im- immediately and immensely. And it was like running away to the friggin' circus hanging out with these guys for the day. And they were all nicotined up and the whole drill, you know, and not a healthy lifestyle, no doubt, for all of them. But they were they were like gypsies. Uh, not that I knew the word, but uh, that's a good analogy. They felt like gypsies, and they were my gypsies. And it was staggering. And it wasn't only because they were men, but certainly their way and their manner marked them off as uh, uncouth, <laughs> but extremely cool. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> what happened then when you hit adolescence and then, you know, maybe who did you look to, you know, rock stars uh, and the celebrities, like where would the template come, you know, sort of of how to, how to behave or how to take direction from in that realm? Uh, I think a teacher probably mm. at school. He was, um, it's grade five. So what does that make me? I don't know. 11, something like this. And he was just, uh, he was a caring guy who loved the work, obviously. And somehow you knew that in a way that didn't shine through with the others. Yeah. And um, I suppose anyone you find immensely admirable as a young person, you're very keen, first of all, to gain the regard of. And then second of all, to, to emulate Know, not in terms of wanting to be a teacher or anything like that, but there was just something um, deeply... Um, he had some regard for us. You you just knew it. When you're on the receiving end of that, you don't really debate it. Mm. You know, it's pretty available to you. And I'm not saying that, though, that uh, that this obeyed the boundaries of your question. In other words... I'm not sure all of this was true because he was a man. Because I will say then, as I say now, I'm not sure that my life does or should properly divide up along those lines, Mm. you know. And I suppose we'll get to what all that means in due course. But uh, in those days, at that age, you know, I'm not saying people were people. I'm certainly not saying that. But uh, you're drawn to people for all kinds of mysterious reasons, you know. And you're not in charge of most of them. And, of course, you know, kids will seek out some recompense for what's missing at home. Of course they will. And if you find yourself in the presence of kids, you got to remember that. You know, and even the family may be intact in a way mine was not, but can have all kinds of other internal, you know, fractures and fissures. and, And kids are remarkable 
uh, seismic scientists when it comes to how the family's doing, mm-hmm. right? And they can seek out all kinds of uh, sustenance and nourishment that's not easily available. We're we're kind of the ultimate, up to a certain age, the ultimate sort of psychic or spiritual hunter-gatherers, <laughs> I think. And then something happens. But until then, you know, we can we can sort of get by most of the time, most of us. And I, I was one of them. One of the things I've tried to do in this podcast is to link uh, some of the understanding of what was going on, maybe I'll say the 70s and you know, early 80s around these topics, though, mm-hmm. around you know, masculinity, femininity, um, I think what was called the second feminist wave, I think at the time, um, or was it the third? I'm still sorting. Mm-hmm. But there was some sense that the women were, you know, kind of rising up and and demanding change in the sort of throwdown to the men. It's like, what are you doing about it? Um, this is what I've heard from people like Mead and um, founder of the Mankind Project, these kinds of, you know, masculine uh, responses. And um, I wonder for you, I'm tracking like that cultural moment. Like, how do you, how do you see what happened or what was rising up then in particular for, for what, what the men were being asked or invited into, you know, in the face of all that, like, where were you at that time? You know, was it present for you or was it sort of, you know, at a distance that, you know, became apparent later? This is a question that you can't help but blow your brains out in answering, Mm. no matter how you answer it. Right? Why? What do you mean? You sound very suspicious. Well, I'm alert. Okay. So I know this question can, if the answer is, I wasn't particularly an issue, just as I said about my, you know, a decade prior, uh, then if I'm the listener, I'm going, uh huh, not very present, eh? <laughs> you weren't very present either, apparently. And, you know, down go my sales. <laughs> <laughs> or I could make something up that wouldn't be overly compelling. I'll tell you, honestly, I don't feel an obligation to have had that be some kind of immense presence and force in around those times. Mm-hmm. I don't feel any obligation to the idea, mm-hmm. really. I don't think it's a, it's a prime indicator of uh, depth of life, you know, or uh, willingness to be on the receiving end of life necessarily. So it would... You know, these things come to you never as ideas, right? Not until you become idea-hounded. Mm. But prior to that, they come they come to you as, you know, your mother has to uh, work out some kind of childcare because she has to, she, you know, she can't make it home from work before you get home from school kind of thing. Mm. That's how it shakes down. And, and you remember, you know, her trying to make that whole scene work and, like you, the, you were the only one who had a mother who was doing that. Mm-hmm. And although now, you see, I'm remembering something, and I'm not a, I'm not a fan of biography or autobiography as the, as the mother load of anything. <laughs> but I suppose this was always in the mix, this memory. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it uh, gently, because it's, it was her memory, mm-hmm. not mine. I remember she told me, but it was this thing that she experienced, yeah? So with great regard for however it went, she told me that when uh, she and my father were disassembling, 
she went to the local uh, minister of some congregation or what, for some kind of, I don't know what, solace or direction or whatever it was. And I don't remember the word she used, to, but she did say that the guy came on to her when she did that. And uh, needless to say, we never went to church or anything of the kind. And she had a rather dark take on not just things religious, but somehow it probably went in the direction of, you know, you're vulnerable and and um, men take advantage. And I, there's no doubt that I was on the receiving end of that instruction and that that um, lament, right? Well, that's still in the time prior to what you're talking about. By the time I, I became vaguely alert as a teenager, which I, you know, strong emphasis on vaguely, um, well, the time you're talking about, I was actually older than that. By the 70s, I was in my 20s. And uh, I can honestly say I don't remember that questions of gender politics, as it was called in the day, was had an enormous presence or or gravitational pull in in how people were with each other. I don't think our relationships had been mapped and charted for us by the uh, the gatekeepers of all of that. I think that was probably happening then, but I'm. My best memory is that we were not tremendously obliged to to act according to a gender specific contemplative order or I mean I don't even know if this sounds odd to you. Like you might not be able to imagine that there was such a thing or you might just think it was my weird little corner. <laughs> <laughs> but um this seems to me to have come around somewhat later. This was not really a woman's studies time in university. It was came a little bit later, best of my recollection. And I don't remember it being particularly caustic as an as a an atmosphere that it occupied. You know, it, that all seemed to come perhaps five or six or ten years in that period is when people began to choose sides mm. and uh, swear allegiances and uh, and disavowals and, and so on. I think that, yeah, that seems to map with what I've just been looking back on and trying to reflect um, and learn. Um, you know, a big book that came out in the, I think it was late 80s, was Iron John, of course, yeah. by Robert Bly. Yeah. And um, James Hillman, I think, had been active for many years mm. by that point. And, of course, Michael Mead was sort of the young... But not as a man's guy. yeah. Exactly. That was the thing. He was a he was a Jungian psychologist and a maverick inside that institution. Mm-hmm. Now this is Hillman I'm talking about now. Mm-hmm. So that that was later and basically got pressed into service by I think by Bly in that regard, yeah. Mm-hmm. And had you encountered Bly? I mean, I know you've mentioned him in the school, you've read some of the poetry. Right. And I wonder, yeah, had you seen him at a conference or Yeah. Because yeah, you you offered I think some take on his his presence or his personality mm-hmm. or something that i really appreciated and mm-hmm. yeah i wonder again how did you encounter was it poetry before he even became a you know the quote man guy no not really it was a very rarefied uh, encounter uh i was asked well okay i don't know if you've got time for it but here we are you're talking to a storyteller i'm <laughs> I, I can't help it um 
I was at a garden party. <laughs> it might have been the last one I, I was invited to and in, in Toronto. And um, halfway through the event, the woman who was sponsoring it came up to me and she said, so, she said, how'd you like to be in a movie? I thought to myself, wow, what a line. <laughs> and uh, I said, what kind of movie? She said, well, we're not really sure yet. It's a kind of documentary. I said, documentary? How do you be in a documentary if it's not about you or you're involved somehow? She said, well, you'd be playing yourself. I said, well, there's a script? No, there's not really. Anyway, it was like that. Mm. And um, I said, anything I should know by way of preparing for this strange thing? She said, well, you could read this book, Iron John. Okay, why? Well, because uh, the guy who wrote it will be in the film. Mm. Oh, okay. I'd never heard of Iron John. But um, I think this is in the time when it was occupying the Citadel on the you know most popular books lists. Mm. It was two days later, and I had a private counseling practice at the time. And a guy came in, and he said to me, uh, you know, I don't mind talking about myself, but I wonder if we could devote one of our meetings to talking about this. And he slid a book across to me. And I looked down, and I thought, what's the likelihood of me seeing the words Iron John twice in the same week? You know? And I've subsequently recognized that sometimes the fingers of God insert themselves up your nostrils and draw you forward, right? I think that was one of those times. So it was two or three months later, I ended up on a soundstage with uh, maybe 20, 25 people. And, um, and Marion Woodman and Robert Bly. And they walked in to the soundstage. We were already there and set up and everything. And I can still hear his voice. The first thing he said was, ah, humans, he said. And it wasn't clear that he was excited by that, you know. Well, that's what he said. And he's a bear of a man. He's a huge Viking guy, right? And so we shot the film, and it was an amazing encounter. I don't know if it was a good film, but it was an amazing encounter to be part of it in my, I suppose, late 20, very early 30s, one of the two. And he was a, a force of nature. I mean, he, everything that came to him came to him fairly, I would say, including the adversity, you know. So he was fierce and harsh and hard and hard-hearted at times, immensely generous and so many things. And, uh, and he was on the receiving end, as was Marion for women, but he was on the receiving end of a kind of father hunger that really knew no bottom to it, I would say. And he detonated it, and I'm not sure that he encouraged it overly, but he didn't step aside from it. And it was part, and, it became part and parcel of what he did. And uh, we subsequently corresponded, and I wouldn't say we were ever close. I wouldn't say he would remember me at all. But, uh, but we did correspond, and you know, he knew that I was working on a book at the time, which became Money and the Soul's Desires. And he said, mm. if, he wa if I wanted to look at it, and I said, sure. And uh, <laughs> I, f I found out later that he was very hard on people who were involved in the same work as him. Mm. It's just how he was. And he wrote back a very short note, and he just said, you're in over your head. <laughs> that was his paternal encouragement. <laughs> Get out while you still can. Yeah. But I, I was very 
felt very lucky to have met him and and uh he was uh you know he earned everything that came to him i would say and worked very very hard and uh one other vignette and then we can move on he <clears throat> he said to me one time just in idle conversation you know what being famous in america is like i said no idea he said it's good morning america calls you in the morning and asks you what you had for breakfast that's what it really is and i thought a little cynical you know a little harsh and years went by and uh i was doing an interview and uh the guy said uh, that he felt nervous talking to me yeah. i said so what can talk about ordinary things until you get on the other side of that it's your show but if that doesn't help then uh, then just start with something ordinary okay he said what did you have for breakfast <laughs> and i immediately remembered you know robert's story and i thought wow is this my 15 minutes which is long over now by the way but well thanks to you bet i'm trying to understand a way of seeing like what was detonated or sparked or you know um because something clearly caught in the culture at large at least from you know me looking back as a younger and you know i heard stories of uh you know hundreds of men gathering in a gymnasium and mm -hmm. all these circles spinning out and you know i talked to the co-founder as i mentioned of the mankind project which spun out from that time as well mm -hmm. um and they, they were trying to cobble together like an initiation weekend you know for for men to kind of i don't know try to become adults or you know something and and then at the same time it seemed to have um you know burned hot and then kind of went underground and i know like martin shaw when i spoke to him he called it the wilderness years kind of mm. you know sort of in the 2000s and i'm still just trying to understand a way of seeing you know what was it that that caught fire and then why didn't it quote sustain you know like what are the ways of looking at it that mm. that um maybe are now easier to see now but couldn't maybe be seen then mm. Well, I could hazard a guess or two. Uh, I, one of them is you could ask yourself what happened to, quote, the 60s, unquote. Uh, and the answer is, well, for, it didn't last a decade. That's for sure. It's just a couple of years. And the simple truth of the matter is that the 60s graduated, that that, that cohort uh, graduated university and had to cope with in-the-world setting that didn't complement their immense over-involvement in their own satisfactions. There was other things, too, mm. about the 60s, but certainly that was an enormous part of it, the demand that everything be relevant to a 20-year-old, mm. just to choose that one thing, you know. So they graduated, and very hard to maintain life on the barricades, you know, when you're trying to... And I don't say that in any cynicism. It, it genuinely is uh, too hard. So by the same token, you could ask what happened to the, quote, men's movement. Th there was never such a thing as the men's movement. There might have been all kinds of um, shards of a, uh, of a broken vessel that nobody had seen intact. I, I suspect that's what it was, right? So why did it happen when it did in different places? Well, it didn't happen everywhere. Not everybody was drawn into it. Um, one of the colossal consequences was... A, a campaign of unimaginable shame and and uh, humiliation directed at it. Mm. And men participated vehemently in that shaming and that humiliation. 
So it wasn't just women who were drawing it down. Um, Ms. Magazine hired Robert Bly's ex-wife to write a, what amounted to an expose of him at his the peak of his... I mean, a lot of stuff was going on, you know. And um, I can tell you that inside, as what little I saw of it, the men's... The three-ring circus of trying to figure it out was not principally a politicized, uh, socially engaged proposition. It it seemed to function much more at the level of um, psyche. Psychology was heavily uh, leaned upon. Uh, a lot of um, archetypal talk and things of that kind that I myself didn't find overly compelling, but certainly an awful lot of people did. And an immense reliance upon catharsis. And this might be the biggest hint of all. When you have a kind of broad-reaching social event that's not principally about society. It's principally about the inner life. And it seeks after a cathartic event every time it gathers itself, every time it tries to cohere and appear again. It tells you something about an acute absence of some kind of ongoing, resolving orchestrated public life and it was basically abandoned as I remember it in this men's work that the the notion of public orchestrated public experience was um, readily and even eagerly abandoned in favor of the inner life I think anything that is overly hankering after some kind of resolved simplified a beatific and uh, and uh, baptismal inner life is not going to have stay in power because you can't find it in your days, you see. And you eventually have to choose your meaningless um, working life and then your deeply meaningful uh, weekends in the country mm-hmm. with the lads. You know, it's it's not a decision anybody should have to make. I mean, there's a lot of work involved in trying to find the two of them together. And maybe that's what's happened since. I'm not really a student of the whole operation, but it didn't have a chance. The white hot attention that was ladled upon it was its own demise. It couldn't stand the glare of that examination in much the same way maybe that the Rajneesh arrangements can't stand a lot of scrutiny, largely because the scrutiny is not that kind. Okay, So I'm not saying something nefarious here. I'm saying there's something in the nature of being exposed to an inquiry which is allegedly journalistic, but is actually attempting to, you know, expose. I mean, who's going to who's going to sign up for an, that kind of treatment ongoingly? I mean, your own understanding of yourself can't can't bear that for too very long. I don't think. You shared one time in the school, if I recall, um, a story about James Hillman. I think you'd, you'd either met him or, mm-hmm. you know, it was nearing the end of his days. And, and there was some, you know, thing that you witnessed that yeah. felt very, um, if I recall, it's a demeaning or, you know, but it was part of the culture that, mm-hmm. yeah. And I wonder if you might just share that. Sure. Yeah. This is, um, I told the story without I, naming the very first time I ever told it in a public setting. It was in Australia. 
the guy sitting at the front walked over to me at the end and he said, uh, I'm a psychologist and I'm certain you're talking about James Hillman. I said, well, don't tell anybody. But that is the story. and that's, That is the man. Yes, I was at the one and only um, men's gathering in Minnesota that I went to, which was the headquarters, I guess, in some respects back in those days. And uh, glad to do it. But it was odd. It was a lot of things. It was it was tribal, not in the best sense that that word could be meant. And there was a, certainly an orthodoxy of sorts that you had to negotiate your way into in order to prevail. And, and you know, a lot of things. Um, a lot of hurt people in there as well. Anyway, I suspect the the book called... If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Was written either by American Buddhists or for them or both, because the idea is very compelling uh, to a place that has a marginal or sketchy affiliation with its predecessors. Right? Yeah. So, in that spirit, the uh, the organizers of the conference put together a kind of uh, kind of like a student production of a play. Uh, on the spot. I guess they had scripted it up somewhat. The, the principals knew what they were going to do and so on. And what it was was a send-up. It was really a mockery of the uh, the teachers of the conference. And the more in earnest the teacher was, the more subject to scorn and worse he uh, was let in for in this production. I, if I was, I was actually invited years later to be a teacher at one of these conferences and I politely declined but uh, had I been subjected to this I wouldn't have made it to first base with any of these guys but mm. given my earnestness but anyway <laughs> so uh, as it happened uh, uh, James Hillman was one of the teachers there and he was in for particular um, critique given his um, his persona which was reedy and thin and a bit Ichabod Cranish kind of thing you know because he was a Yankee and in the midst of, of this uh, play, somebody snuck up behind him and poured a, a glass of red wine over his head. And uh, I mean, he's a very proper guy. He couldn't roll with that. Now, everybody laughed like crazy, or maybe not everybody. I certainly didn't. I was sitting very close, and I could see the look in his eyes. And uh, he, was, he was awash in indignation of the deepest remorseless kind. And uh, I felt the violation from where I sat, you know. I mean, he pasted a, 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 a smile and tried to roll with it, but he couldn't. And um, as I told the story, I knew what I should have done then. It would have involved me going against not just the grain, but the whole operation. What I should have done is walked over to him with a towel and uh, apologized to him in some fashion, not as, as an enormous display, but to uh, somehow somehow soothe him, I guess. But nobody did. I certainly didn't. I sat there frozen and taken up with the, uh, with the tribal noise. Yeah. And the moment passed, and I let it pass, and I don't say that with any... Uh, understanding I really regret it now and years and years went by and uh, I was invited to uh, 
be part of a panel discussion at a Jungian conference in Montreal. And uh, at the end of the first, I think we were on for three days, at the end of the first day, we we're all trooping out into the cold November Montreal night for uh, to eat, you know, outside of the bad hotel food. Mm. And uh, I was trying to get out to my party that was waiting for me by the taxi. I could see them. It was one of those old revolving hotel doors. And uh, this old man was shuffling in the in the compartment just in front of me. Man, he was not moving. And so they were actually gesturing me, let's go. And I gestured them, you know, what can I do? I got this guy in front of me. Obviously, an old man's quite stooped and everything. And eventually he got out of the way and I made my way to the people. And just as I was about to uh, get in the taxi, I just looked over at him. And I recognized him immediately from the side, though I'd only ever seen him once. I'd seen a picture. Of course, you know who it was. And he was enjoying some kind of tribute there at the end of a long and illustrious career among his fellow Jungians, those who still could bear him. And uh, and he was standing with his small group waiting for a taxi as well. And the whole memory of that time in Minnesota washed over me and that indignation and the wine and the whole the whole thing, tawdry and an extreme and deeply violating of an older generation as it was. And uh, I knew in that moment what I should have done. I should have gone over, briefly reminded him of the moment and apologized to him for not having taken care of something, you know. But at this, this is all in a second. This is happening and they basically pulled me into the car because nobody knew this. I didn't. We finally got to the restaurant and the moment passed and and basically people were introducing themselves around the table because we didn't know each other really. And when it came my turn to introduce myself, I told that story instead. Or maybe it was a proper introduction to who I was and you know what I was capable of when push came to shove twice with the same guy. And within two or three months, he was dead. So all I've got is the, the regret you know, to go with the, the memory of the, the man. But I tell that story, you know, not of a, out of any desire to make any particular outfit or, or movement look bad, but I will say that in what I saw of the self-conscious men's movement, the inclination to have a real go at your seniors was very, very strong, very palpable and powerful, and not challenged really at all. Oh, there was the odd talk about elders, but man, you had to survive that outfit. And it was not clear that that it being an elder, you were much more than a an already out to pasture, no longer dangerous type. That was the title, or that's how you got it. It strikes me, uh, you know, you mentioned your book, Money and the Soul's Desires, uh, earlier, which uh, I have read. And I remember there was a passage where you spoke about the, something like the, the I don't know if you said this, but the food or the the nourishment or that can come from younger men just sitting with older men and not hearing about their achievements per se, but just how life had its way with them. And um, I hear that little in the story you're sharing about 
James Hillman and, you know, that it's a, it's actually a regret and there's no, you know, quote, happy ending to it of triumph, but that there's real, um, there's something in that, that it offers us some, yeah, naming a, a lack of etiquette, naming, yeah, something to how to proceed differently. Um, and I just really appreciate that hmm. to, to hear that. In Orphan Wisdom School, the subject of masculine and feminine tends to come up uh, somewhat rarely and never really directly mm-hmm. at it. And I've actually been really appreciative sometimes when you have, you know, you've, you've followed a trail into all of a sudden it's, and it's the topic that's being spoken to. And we, we return in a way to some of the main inquiries. And in some sense, it's almost like catching a little something before it's gone again. And, and I wonder what is it about the directly using those labels or, or approaching from those, those doorways that seems maybe not that helpful, or it's, it's a way that you've somehow avoided typically. Um, and I wonder why, you know, that why are those so maybe so loaded terms that sort of immediately kind of get us off the scent of something that maybe there is something within them though, that, that needs to be approached quite differently. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing I'd say is I don't avoid them. I I reconnoiter the neighborhood from time to time <laughs> and then decide whether or not that's where we're going to pitch our tent. Mm. It's not really avoidance. Okay? And then the second thing would be that I remain, and you could say, so what after this, and I wouldn't blame you, <laughs> but I remain deeply underpersuaded that masculine and feminine as personality types or as fundamental aspects of personal identity are as valuable as they're trotted out to be, as useful as they seem to be employed to be. I don't understand these things fundamentally as identities. I understand them as functions, in that sense as verbs, not as nouns. Uh, and that might sound like a trite distinction to make, but I think <clears throat> by the time you descend into the frank anarchy of uh, personal identity, and then imagine that you're going to employ it as a means of inquiry, there's not a lot of consciousness brought to bear on the fact that the Okay, I'll say it differently. I think it's advisable to distinguish between masculinity and femininity as identities and masculinity and femininity as ways of proceeding, which are not resolutely single-note symphonies that allow for enormous departures from, from this the orthodoxy, and so on, right? That's why I call them verbs rather than nouns. I think when they atrophy and become a personal identity, there's an enormous amount of intolerance that's basically waiting by the door to to gain entry into the arrangement. Uh, Thirdly, if that's where we are in the list now, the school is principally an enterprise in disciplined inquiry. It is not uh, committed to indoctrination. 
So this is why you have trouble describing it to people as being sort of doctrinally oriented in any particular direction. It's not ideological, right? It's rather than wondering about masculinity as a discrete subject, which you cannot find naturally occurring mm. in a human life. You can't find it as a discreetly occurring event. This was a masculine event, or that's a masculine note he struck, or she struck, or what. I think it's much more compelling and frankly intellectually honest to allow the real possibility that masculinity and femininity are ways of inquiring rather than things to inquire about. Okay? The problem with not making the distinction is that if you, if you inquire after masculinity in this case as a discrete topic of inquiry, you, you're not allowing what it is that's bringing you there. What's the, what's the MO that mobilizes you in the direction of masculinity? So, this is how we do it at the school. Yes, occasionally it's come up. I can tell you a story. I don't know if you were there. Um, uh, I'm sitting virtually in the place where this moment took place, I think, here in the hall. We were studying Beowulf, and um, I thought and remain convinced that it was going very well. It's a very compelling business. You know, is there such a thing as monsters? What happened to them? You know? How does, is God another monster? And, and how did this story survive the onslaught against paganism and so on? I mean, there's, it's fantastic, frankly. And to know that we're in the, in the mothership of the language that you and I are speaking in now when you're looking at Beowulf. Well, in the midst of all of this, on the last evening that we had, which tends to be a bit buoyant because we get the, the mugs out and we get the meat out, not to reenact anything, folks at home, but simply to acknowledge that we've gone this far in the proceedings and we're all still alive and maybe there's been a monster at the door and maybe he or she or they've been let in. Such is the spirit of inquiry that I'm trying to inculcate. And uh, one of the earliest questions of the evening session after some applic topical application of the mead was uh, something in the order of a woman said that she was missing strong feminine characters in Beowulf. And it was extraordinary what happened in the room when this got said. Um, a lot of people ducked. A lot of people looked the other way. A lot of people wanted out in the worst way, out of the room, out of that discussion, out of this century. And you could, you could certainly see it, right? And um, and a, and a lot of the people that wanted out, or wanted this to be over, looked at me, and said with their eyes, you know, for the love of God, don't. So you can do one of only a handful of things that are available to you. One is you can argue. You could argue. I don't know why you would, but you could. You could feel cornered and therefore argue. You could placate and say, you're right, and we'll never look at Beowulf again. Or let's have somebody translate it and just superimpose strong feminine characters. Or You could even point out there actually are. And then you could ask the woman, 
Do you remember their names? <clears throat> but that's just gotcha. I mean, there's no point in winning a moment like that. You lose. Everybody loses, right? I said to her, um, I pointed out that there were, you know, female leads in the story. But I did point her attention to the death in the story, the violent death that predominated in the story. Not pe Most people did not meet their end <clears throat> in their dotage. And I said, um, do you recall how many women were maimed or killed during the, you know, the course of the story? She allowed that she couldn't remember that there was a one. And I said, did you count how many men died in the course of the story? And she admitted that she hadn't. And I said to her, you know, neither one of us are trying to win right now, right? We're trying to wonder about something. And it's one thing, and it's an understandable thing, to want to find yourself in everything you read. But with all due respect, I suggest to you that it's a juvenile expectation to bring to the world, to insist on seeing yourself at every favorable turn. The idea being that if you recognize yourself in the advertising of the culture, you're more present in the culture than if you're not in the advertising. What has it done, do you think, to the people who do see themselves in the advertising? See, it's, it's that kind of discussion, no? And to her, to her immense credit, you know, 10 minutes later, and not right away, because I didn't know, you know, how that really set, and we had to proceed, and we did. But 10 minutes later, I walked over to where she sat, which is where I'm sitting right now, and I extended my hand, and she extended hers, and I shook her hand, and I said, we're okay. At least as far as I'm concerned, we're okay. And she said, we're okay. And I think everyone felt... Not that something had been avoided, but in fact that something hadn't been avoided. And for that, there was a blessed kind of relief. And the P.S. in the story is that she never came back. This reminds me of uh, something you'd said at one other class. It might have been during the Beowulf, but you said that there was a war on the feminine mm -hmm. and that there's often women on the front lines. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, in certain circles, that would seem outrageous, you know, to, to make the case for. And yet mm -hmm. there's something there. You're right that the uh, the gender itself doesn't somehow mean that you're for, you know, the feminine. And and that's something that, you know, I wonder how to, yeah, how to how to approach then if feminine and say masculine are ways of inquiry, I think you said, or. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ways of wondering about yeah, things. Ways yeah, ways of wondering. And, yeah. um, and then I wonder then, that leads me to, you know, another sort of big, what feels like uh, the fundament of the mayhem in the world today, again, according to certain um, certain circles, that mm. the word patriarchy right, comes up a lot. Mm. And actually, in my podcast, I spend a lot of time, if I ever talk about this, I actually say, this is not... I don't just use it at face value. And I say, oh yeah, that's it. That's the worst, you know, that's the worst thing ever. Um, let's move on. Mm -hmm. And largely too, because of what I've heard in the school. You know, you've spent time, I think, just wondering about it differently. And I've been really grateful for that mm -hmm. because I do feel like there's something, 
in the ability to, I don't know, not, not, yeah, hold it up as the easy enemy and, and not recognize what the consequence is when you do that. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. 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 Especially the unintended ones, the collateral damage of doing so. Yeah. And I would love if we could speak to that a little. Um, mm. you know, etymology is, I think, one way in which it's been quite helpful. And yeah. Well, let's start there. Um, people who are not fans of any language or of speaking, finding it to be a kind of low-grade enterprise. And I've many a conference I've been to, all as a paid participant, I should point out, where uh, language is continually uh, slayed, frankly, in the name of higher understanding. Mm -hmm. But for those of us left who regard the language as something we've actually been entrusted with Right, and not yoked to, and to recognize that our imaginations are actually deeply bound to the language that we're entrusted to, then you want to cultivate the language for all it's worth, or for, you know, as best as you can. So, patriarchy, uh, patros, not man, not boy, father. Hmm. Is, it, is father a subset of men? Arche, the fundament, the kind of hard to realize fundament that upholds everything that rests upon it. Foundational, requiring the ability to stand under in order to be understood. It's not just a play on words. That's literally what it means. That's why it's archaeology and archetype and, you know, architectonics and arch, archaic. All of these refer to some, not the first, but the that which is willing to stand under and sustain everything that comes subsequent to it. Put them back together and what do you have? Do you have men? No. But you do have something masculine and it's a function it's the willingness to engage in a kind of primordial spirit labor called fathering it does not require that you have bio children in order to do so in fact father doesn't say anything about children per se mm. you can obviously father a culture you can father an idea, just to take two obvious examples, no? So you realize it's a function. Does it partake exclusively of things masculine? I don't know. I have no obli obligation to know that. But I would say that it goes without saying that if that's what patriarchy is, we need way more of it than we have, number one. And number two, women should understand themselves as not excluded from the fathering function. Not just by virtue of having been on the receiving end of the fathering function in their own childhoods, but to recognize that the kind of psychic repertoire that is included in the word fathering is not exclusive to men. 
and the the it, whatever instinct may be in women to abandon it at all costs is costly and not only to the patriarchy but to the women who are leaving it to the men you could say many of the same things with matriarchy the sad truth of the matter is of course that the word matriarchy has never at least in my hearing ever been used as an inherently slanderous lamentable term and i mean never right so i think this helps i don't say that it soothes a savage beast in any way at all but it's very hard to engage in systematic grievance and allow the deep i'm looking for this dna let's call it dna the deep dna of the word to be available to you it's very hard to maintain your grudge and your grievance never mind the quick and dirty slander that the word has become i mean it just i i, I don't think it it serves anyone to isolate a particular gender i don't know how many there are now but in this case to to isolate fathering men as somehow responsible for the things that are laid at their feet you could easily say that one of the reasons those things that are laid at their feet are there at all in their lamentable legions is a consequence of the uh, underfunctioning of men in the patriarchal role that's why i said earlier we could use more of it once you realize what it is but the culture needs its fathering at least as much as it needs its fathers you see and so even people who are not in the reproductive game don't get an out clause and say well this doesn't this doesn't apply to me at all no functionally it absolutely applies to you you see never mind godfathering which may be a whole other podcast <laughs> so so i'll leave it so i mean i think maybe that begins mm-hmm. some kind of parallel contemplation that doesn't argue with the prevailing uh grievance driven propositions because you can't or at least i don't think should argue with the historical realities that clearly indicate you know paradigms of wrongdoing and so forth it's just not clear to me that there is an achievement to be had in seeing to it that a particular gender or gendered function is asked to bear the deep responsibility and the shame and the guilt that goes with it of these these histories right it's much more complicated than anybody wants it to be right as soon as it becomes complex it's not easy to win an argument and there should be a hint for people of good faith who are willing to proceed in good faith with each other there should be a hint there if you can't win an argument as soon as it becomes subtle maybe you're not supposed to be able to win it in winning it you lose the subtleties of the dilemmas should survive our attempts to understand them you know there's there's an enormous nourishment i think to be had there
I'm thinking in this moment to to take a second to occupy what I understand to be the, you know, let's say the perspective of of those in that seat, like the seat of patriarchy is the you know the ultimate answer into all of the mayhem, mm-hmm. and it seems to re- sort of revolve around this sense that um, that there's been maybe using this language of father a great trespass, almost like the you know the father betrayed their role to be, you know, let's say the protector or the um, more, maybe the more noble aspects of masculinity, something like that. Like there seems to be, that's where the, um, yeah, the trespass of the grievance lies in this almost like abdication of the true, you know, ennobled father, at least, you know, that's my read on it. And at the same time, I still hear, you're right, there's this subtlety of, well, wait a second. Um, And I remember speaking with another indigenous uh, um, interview, a subject where he's, he basically was like, you can't, separate them in that way as well like that there was something in it's almost like what happened to this culture whereby the ability to separate you know and then uh demand that the responsibility or accountability lies you know on the one gender because when you're in it it seems very clear right you see oh men you know you see trumping up there in this tower and it just seems like uh so self-evident you know when when i sit in that perspective and yet again the, the consequence of which is still somehow harder to recognize and I'm, that's where i'm still with I'm, I'm sort of you know caught on this crossroads mm-hmm. yeah well understandably so i mean it hasn't been easy for you because you were born with the complex misfortune of living i think your entire aware life in a highly charged highly polarized um, time of alleged discussion where there's not much discussion that actually happens. There's a lot of posturing and there's a lot of trying to score points and so on. Well, how about this? If you are willing to concede the possibility that father as a function and mother as a function are not principally personal identities and therefore not bound to reproductive uh, anatomy, not bound to whatever serotonin matrix is associated with all of that. But in fact, it's first and foremost a culturally endorsed, culturally derived, culturally enforced proposition if you're willing to concede that possibility at least, one of the things you end up with is the consideration that what you're talking about here is not the abdication of responsibility of men. Because you keep, I mean, you got to be careful. Do you mean men or do you mean fathers? Mm. It's not this, you mean boys too? Boys who have no notion of fathering to speak of at all, for whom the word patros doesn't re- doesn't ring at all. So, if it's not these guys, if that's not what patros is, that's not what fathering is, that the all the understanding of what it is and what it isn't, what it should be and should not be and so on, is culturally derived, then where are the failings? Where are the abdications? They're at the level of culture. Now, I'm not arbitrarily distinguishing personal behavior from a cultural 
mandate and a cultural matrix that makes it make sense. But I'm saying you don't invent the repertoire that you draw from. Right? You don't. You inherit the repertoire and you selectively go through the aisles of what's available to you. As a man, as a father, as a son, as a boy. So, in one sense of thinking about it, culture has no face. It's it's not easy to blame. I myself have routinely said in this very room what we have instead of a culture in the dominant North American circumstance. I don't know any point to trying to figure out, quote, when it started. Okay? But there's no question that the generic North American culture is desperately seeking after itself. And that's on its good days. And one of the ways it does so, it seems to me now, is that it it wants more of its, at the moment, fathers. But these are pendulum issues, and sooner or later, I suspect mothers will be asked to, or maybe already were, and now we're, whatever the momentum is, I don't know. But you abandon your culture at considerable peril to yourself, no matter how derelict and defunct you find it to be. Because you can't choose your cultural affiliation. No. And it's something like ancestry. You know, you've heard me talk about this before, I think. You don't get to choose your ancestry. Perhaps in a New Age context you do, but for the rest of us, we're heirs to an ancestry. It's not in the bulk food bin of your psychic department store, right? And has I, I've yet to hear anybody do the psychic math on the consequences of setting aside a deeply disagreeable culture that you were born to and training it in for a more swarthy, sort of cafe au lait complexioned, completely intact, inviolable, mother-friendly, woman-friendly proposition. I mean... There's consequences for you as a living person to do so. Certainly there's consequences for the the culture that you're more than willing to leave behind. But could there not be compound consequences that ensue from doing so for those people who entrusted a deeply maligned and malignable culture to you? And if that's even remotely possible, can the consequences not be retroactively present, so present, that that's the layer that we're contending with now. Mm. We're living the, the layer of consequence that ensues from our unwillingness to sign up for the culture work that our distraught culture seeks after from us. Right? Mm. So it's already two layers of compound fracture. And that's just the living. And if the dead have any consequence or presence in our lives... And you'd be talking to patriarchy and you'd be slandering up men. Man, you are really racking up the consequences and the casualties, ancestrally speaking. Where does it end if it doesn't end with the living? How come we still can't make a distinction between understanding consequence and being able to 
black out the bad guys. How is that not another consequence? I should say hastily that blacking out the bad guys, I was actually thinking of those highlighter pens for those who are very sensitive to the word black or mm -hmm. the verb to black out. Mm -hmm. That's what I meant. Mm -hmm. I think that this relates to part of, part of a wider, let's say, unseeable goneness, which I think plagues so much of men's work that I see, you know, in the culture, is that uh, there's no shared cultural understanding within mm. those that participate in it, mm. typically. And I actually spoke to an indigenous fellow and, you know, just mentioned, um, you know, what is his perspective on men's work and sort of the the broader cultural retreats and things that are being done. And he's like, well, I said, how come there's maybe less or, or not many indigenous men that go to these? And he was kind of like, well, one, they've borrowed a lot of things that perhaps they, you know, don't know where they're from. But also he's like, you know, we got our own work to do, you know, in, in amongst our people. And maybe down the road we could talk about, you know, mingling. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like that's a, a kind of unseeable thing that when, as it relates to ancestry, as it relates to place, as it relates to, you know, these, the sense of being from somewhere that um, in the rush to cobble together a new culture or a, you know, new men's uh, movement that it, 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 those things don't seem to be part of the conversation. Sorry, which things don't? Those things of not having a, not drawing upon a, a kind of shared ah. ancestral understanding. Okay. You know, they're not confessing the poverty at their beginnings. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and so in that sense, I hear in what you're saying that that to me is where to sort of the, the real, I don't know, goneness or real, um, starting place, let's say that maybe doesn't run so much on the high octane of the, weekend ceremony or anything like that but but it's something that i constantly um, i'm sort of by being in the school as well you know returning to again and again and just recognizing the yeah the the goneness is so gone mm -hmm. um in so much of this and and yeah that any attempt to yeah to stitch together some kind of you know shared something always feels like it's drawing upon the kind of cotton candy <laughs> you know around mm -hmm. and and so it's it's hard to even approach um uh, in these circles often too, right? Because how do you really m get someone to recognize the depth of the goneness before they begin? I mean, you send them to the school, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I wouldn't do that to them. <laughs> well, poverty is a very legitimate beginning, you know? Poverty of spirit, poverty of inheritance, poverty of your capacity to hold in good stead if not in if not dearly those that preceded you that more or less look like you all of these things you throw these away in the name of a better day you'll mistake anything but that as a better day you see that's not what it is so trying to be happy is a ludicrous life goal why? Well, first of all, you're not in charge of your happiness, right? You might have certain criteria you think, when met, inevitably produces happiness for you. But any close examination will clearly reveal that that's not true. Your, your capacity to be happy is just that. It's a capacity. It's not a, a fail-safe response to stimuli. Hmm? 
You've got to be able to be happy, for starters. You've got to cultivate the capacity to do it. And you've got to be able to do so in a circumstance that's fundamentally unchanged from when you weren't enjoying the happiness, you see? What, what am I saying? Why am I talking about happiness? I'm saying it's some, that wanting a kind of spiritual clarity as a goal is a ludicrous goal to, to set for yourself. It's a consequence of pursuing what I like to call work, right? It's a byproduct of work. Self-esteem is a byproduct of honorable work. It comes from other places too, but minus that, you're going to be hard-pressed to come up with it, you see? A sense of self that you can live with is not a consequence of how you feel about yourself. It's a consequence of your engagement with the wider world, right? So it seems to me that until these trying to make a new movement, movements, cop to the fact that, you know, you know why you're trying to do this again? Because the last guys who tried to do it again crashed and burned. What have you learned from that? Right? It's not another something, right? This, it's an old Zen teaching story, you know. Walk out of the door, go down the street, fall down the hole in the middle of the road. Second day, go to, fall down the hole in the middle of the road, as you're falling, you're going, didn't I just do this? Third day, go down the street, fall down the hole. You say, ah, this is the hole I meant not to fall down. Fourth day, come, in, come to the edge of the door. I wonder if I'm going to fall down the hole today. Fifth day, go down a different street. Right? That's a, that's a wild learning curve. But it should be uh, recognizable to people who are listening. Right? Not just personal foible stuff, but especially the movement stuff. The stuff where people can get lost in so readily and so gleefully. Right? Where they can set aside their personal sense of futility for the sake of, of something that seems like it's moving. You know, that's, that's a recipe for resembling a shark, not a, not a human. You know, constant movement to drive the water through the gills. That's shark stuff, man. You know. There's nothing wrong with defeat provided you are cultivating a kind of life wherein more and more noble things are defeating you. The increasing nobility of your adversary makes you look good. You still don't win but your manner of defeat is highly commendable. I'm not a real movement guy, mm. in case it doesn't show. <laughs> you made me think of fatherhood, actually, mm. now. And, and this, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of my own son, who's just about two, and you're a father as well. Mm. And something in that, 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 like you said, the the willingness to be defeated. And it's almost like I think of, fatherhood as the adversary and the willingness to be defeated in fatherhood as opposed to some kind of perfection game, right? Which it can often be certainly as a young father being like, I got to get this right. Um, you know, whatever that even means. And I wonder as you look on fathering now, yeah. How, how do you see it differently or how is it different than what you thought? Uh, you know, I would benefit, I think greatly just to hear some of how it's been for you. 
Oh, that's a that's a complicated question because you're asking somebody who's 66, mm. who's had a 30 plus years in 35, whatever it is, in the trenches of quote fathering. Mm. So you'd reasonably expect that my take on it would change just by virtue of time passing, by virtue of you know my kids not being kids, chronologically speaking, as they once were, of them occupying places where di disagreement with me was not just symbolic as it once was and i could you know there's many many examples of that kind of thing so so these things should simply track the shifts in your life mm -hmm. in other words i would say if you're a father one of the big questions you must entertain is whether you are now a father first mm -hmm. is that is that the identity I know I've already been troubled by the word, but is that the identity that, pardon the expression, trumps all the other identities? That's what I mean. Are you a father first? And then, you know, the cultural uh, engine that drives that, that's subsequent to it. When you die, will you die as a father? What does that conceivably mean? What does a dying father how does a dying father father now? Well, that's not abstract because I was in the death trade for a long time. I can tell you the question never appeared, basically never appeared, you see. So I'm suggesting here that fathering is down the list of things that constitute you, okay? Largely, and this is survival strategy as much as anything else for you because that person who's two years old right now it won't take very long at all till they're 22 and the centrality of your fathering function in your self-assessment is going to suffer irreparable harm mm. as they move out past public school, um, you know, circuitry and into employment circuitry and romantic circuitry and so on. And the centrality of your gig, you know, you're going to have to find other work, you see. So I sense we're coming to the end of our time here, and uh, I'd like to make sure this gets in. I've been asked by not just men, women as well. In fact, more often, but young women will ask me whether or not they should have children at all. This is an amazing thing that I've lived long enough to be uh, regarded as something of a, a sounding post on this matter, you see mostly they're deeply uncertain about it in the direction of maybe probably no. And they're in a way seeking after me taking that certainty away from them. And I have to be quite alert to that as to you know why the question's being asked. And as these conversations go along, one of the things that becomes really clear is that they don't want to put into motion another sequence of not just drastic disappointment for themselves, but kind of world-wearying, you know, larger-scale catastrophe for the world, right? Not to mention, how can I possibly bring a child into the world? And this? My, it falls to me to say, well, first of all, the world doesn't need your kid, your imaginary kid. No matter what any... Uh, uh, self-improvement guru might say could be the next enough already we've already had the one that you're going to point to that this one could be the reincarnation of and look at us we don't need two 
Okay, we don't need any more people. Okay. So then, you're going to have to find another way of mothering or fathering in this world if you're willing to take that seriously. Seriously now. Okay? Because your personal preferences, your personal drive or deep longing to have another chance to get it right called a baby. It's not clear that that should be a right any longer. This is it's fighting words, I know, but it's, it's abundantly unclear that it should be a right at this point in the proceedings. But for all of that, let's imagine that, you're, that your son is actually here with us. Well, we don't have to imagine, it's acknowledge. Mm. So this question is besides the point now. You didn't ask me about it then. <laughs> okay? And so you're in a roundabout way asking me about it now which is the safest time to ask about it, right? Okay. So I've had to say to these people sitting there with in varying degrees of disarray about the whole matter, do you know, if you already have child or children in the world, you're going to have to come to realize sooner rather than later would be my recommendation. That beyond the care and feeding operation, the custodial function in their lives your status in making for them a bona fide inner life is very minor. Okay? You can't do it. You can screw it up pretty bad, but you can't be the paragon that you've set yourself up to be as a goal. Okay? In other words, the psychic life of your child disqualifies you from deep penetration and participation in that life. On the other hand, your participation in the psychic life of any other child besides your own is granted to you as a condition of your citizenship and your gender, whatever that means. And so, when it comes to your own kids, your gestures and your moves have to be indirect and elongated and elliptical, and never really satisfying in the old sense of satisfying. In other words, the only real way you can have a, a, the kind of consequence you want in the psychic life of your kids is to work on behalf of a better day in this world and hope somewhere in there some aspect of the better day kicks in just long enough to be kind where your child's inner life is concerned and their kindness in turn reflects towards the world, and so on, and so on. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways you do it is by occupying the father function in the lives of other kids with whom you are not disqualified for participating at that level because you don't have the same kind of uh, horse in the race as you do with your own kid. Like these kids can fail. It's not the end of the world for you. Mm -hmm. And the amazing thing is that that... Degree of separation enables you with them, you see. And if there were a quote, a men's movement that could get really hip to that understanding, and no doubt there is, but I could get behind that. I wouldn't join it. Yeah. I could get behind it though. The indirect thing is the godly thing, the direct thing is the cathartic thing. Someday. <sighs> We're going to have to give up on our catharsis addiction. 
or die failing to have done so. I mean, culturally speaking, die failing to have done so. Hmm. I mean, what comes to me is a, is a kind of village-mindedness is, is pleaded for, is called for, and, and how much that asks of parents even to be willing to have, for example, another adult be that to their kid yeah and how you know volatile that can be mm. with this culture in particular other cultures they know that utterly not so much yeah. yeah yeah the nuclear family makes extra familial involvement in your kids lives extremely problematic that's the most neutral way i can say it <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah mm. well i got a lot more questions and no doubt no time left to do them but um how about Maybe this. This is a quote that came from one of the teachings that um, good man Tad uh, dug up as the great note taker that he is. Mm. And uh, and I remember you saying it. And I wonder if this might be a place to, to just leave us for this conversation. Okay. Um, but you said, by desecrating the feminine, the masculine can't survive. Uh. And there's something in that which I feel is maybe could leave us mm. for our conversation today. Well, we could leave it like that. This is a nice <laughs> little Zen Konish kind of disturbance. Mm-hmm. Or you could say, could you say any more about that? Which I'm, I'm happy to do. Mm. Okay. Uh, I'm doing a, a course of talks in the fall. One of them is called Patrimony, Matrimony, Ceremony. And it's about Weddings, <laughs> sort of. It's about other things, too, as you can tell by the title. But why do I put it in that order? Well, because you're a guy. Okay, well, <laughs> well, maybe not. Maybe I thought about it. Yeah, but you thought about it as a guy. Okay, you got me there. It's hard for me not to think as a guy. Okay, but I don't know that that's the prison that you imagine it to be. If I can fully occupy the ground floor of being a guy, I might do all right. So... We never use the word patrimony. It's very rarely used. The French use it. The French use it as a word to describe the kind of cultural artifacts that constitute the achievements that they most deeply recognize themselves and their values in. So it tends to be quite material. Interesting word, material from the root word for mother. That's what patrimony tends to be. So I've used this word in, the, in this title to suggest that that comes first in the following scenario. A little bit of imaginative paleontology here. So, you know, we, it was touch and go for us uh, just to make it to another day, right? A lot of predation and so on around us. And um, it was very much touch and go in the childbirth thing. I'm not sure that, you know, when people finally realized that something between uh, sex and procreation, they were they actually linked. But let's imagine there was a time when, when the causal link wasn't clear. And who would, have, who would women have been then to men? It's extraordinary to think the thought, no? And what makes you think those days are over? That that's not still there, fundamental way. But anyway... You know, for a woman to submit herself to the to the slings and arrows physically 
of childbirth in, an, in a highly volatile time, such as the, the time I'm imagining now, couldn't have been easy and might have taken and probably did take all manner of supplication and ministration, right? Which we now go by the word courtship. You mean, come on, baby, come on, come on, come on. No, that's not courtship. No, courtship is a, is a case-making proposition. Much more like spirit lawyering than trying to get over, right? And one of the things, the cases you're making is that you are willing to submit yourself to, the, to establishing the circuitry of some kind of material sustenance and making that ongoingly so, such that you, the woman, might consider subjecting yourself to something, some parallel disfigurement that could easily take your life. Somewhere in there, the mystery of who men and women could be to each other was, was made more mystifying, more mystical, more deeply honorable and honoring, and many other things. The reason patrimony comes first is if, you're not, if you don't make the case of your submission to that scenario, which we would now know by job, doing work that, that you're not thrilled, but you know, and a host of other things. That's why it comes first. And then the, the matrimony comes second. That's the amazing thing about it, no? I have never had anybody in all the weddings I've done, nobody's ever come up to me and said, Hey, I'm, you know, as an inclusive person, I'm really distressed that the, the man is being invited into the holy state of matrimony, but no woman has ever been invited into the holy state of patrimony ever that I've ever heard. Well, it's a good observation to make, and you're not likely to, and here's why, because they're not parallel events. One comes first and enables imagining the second. And with those two imaginings in place, engaged in the world, comes the third, the ceremony. See, that's how you get there. It's not how you feel about each other. It's your willingness to proceed understanding you're asking an awful lot of the other person if you're asking them to warrant the safety of your desire to procreate. And you're similarly asking an awful lot of another person to subject, subject themselves to the touch and go of reproduction such that you could have something to have and to hold in this world that you could for a moment mistake for your own. Well, thank you, Steve. Welcome. I appreciate your time. Surely. Yours too. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider joining the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and we'd love to have you join. Visit network.themythicmasculine.com to become a member.